This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Sublime, Al Green there, one of these good old days. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, activist Johnny Valkyrie joins us to talk about drag story time. Tech ecosystem leader Joan Westenberg joins us to talk about their trans inclusion policy. And later, Rodney Croom joins us to talk about religious discrimination. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, Johnny Valkyrie is a Brisbane activist who has been focusing lately on drag story time and the religious discrimination debate. And I spoke with them yesterday and we do have a content warning. Our interview includes discussion about mental health issues and trauma that may distress some listeners. Johnny, what can you tell us about the controversies surrounding drag story time in Brisbane? Well, it did make national and global headlines. And this is not the first time that an attack on the LGBTI plus community has occurred in this space. Drag Queen Storytime has a lot of conspiracy theories around it, ranging from allegations of child abuse to radical gender and sexuality indoctrination to, quote, some of the opposition spokespeople. The truth of the matter is that these are events that are endorsed by councils and libraries whereby people who dress up in drag, uh, mainly members of the LGBTI plus community, will read to children. And these books are available at the library for anybody to read. And most of them touch on moral stories like, you know, how to be kind to each other, uh, you know, how to be yourself, how to be understanding of others and I think these are really important morals to be teaching children and especially the rainbow families which these drag story time sessions target. Drag story time was meant to be discussed by Brisbane Council this week. Did the discussions occur and how did they go? The LNP councillors of the Brisbane City Council voted against removing the defamatory and discriminatory and vilifying petitions on the Brisbane City Council website, despite the Brisbane City Council e-petition guidelines stating that no offensive commentary was allowed in petitions. And so it seems that the council has overridden their own policies and guidelines. Uh, The Lord Mayor, Adrian Trinner, became quite aggressive on the live stream of the discussion, and the members of the public gallery were outraged. You can hear that quite clearly. Uh, Labor, Greens and Independent voted to take the petitions down and I made sure that each member of the Brisbane City Council, including Lord Mayor, received a letter from me outlining my condemnation of his position and the harm that he had caused directly to the LGBTI plus community. So will those posts be coming down? They will not and Unfortunately, I believe it is the case that the LNP councillors of the Brisbane City Council have more interest in maintaining what they call freedom of speech over the dignity and well-being of others. We understand that under the Queensland Human Rights Act and the Australian Human Rights Commission that 
discriminatory, vilifying or otherwise uh, deriding commentary on marginalised groups with rejected characteristics can be unlawful in certain circumstances. Now, the LNP government in the Brisbane City Council stated that they had sought legal advice about the petitions, which I find very interesting uh, that they would take the decision of being defensive on this. We know that Lord Mayor Adrian Schrinner voted no in the marriage equality debate, and he claims to support uh, what he calls tolerance and diversity, but by voting no in the marriage equality debate, he has shown that he does not indeed support the rights of the LGBTI community, and further, and more recently, he does not support LGBTI plus people like myself who have been victim to vilification. It sounds like the council in Brisbane is kind of, you know, escalating the situation rather than calming it down since the death of a, of a young activist. Yes, I believe that they want this issue to go away before the local council election. But I stated in my letter that I would make sure that did not happen. I was going to bring this issue up at every given opportunity to ensure that they are taking the well-being of LGBTI plus people seriously. And mind you, the young man who lost his life uh, in the tragedy that followed the separate event, which was the protest and vilification of the drag queens at Brisbane City Council Library and the families and children that were there, I want to make sure that the council holds fast to its LGBTI plus diversity and inclusion policy, its fair treatment policies, and the LNP-run council is not doing that. It is showing contempt and it is enabling hatred towards one of the most vulnerable communities in the city. How are you holding up since the protest towards drag story time in Brisbane that was so distressing and so tragic? How are you holding up since all that's happened? I have had time off work. I have seen a social worker and a psychologist, both of which have been free to me from Queensland Council for LGBTI Health and the Centre for Human Potential. These organisations have been so supportive. I've had so many people send messages of love. However, I have sustained trauma from this, both from the protest and from the hate mail I received afterwards and from learning that the young man who instigated this protest had taken his own life. Being somebody who survived multiple suicide attempts in my teens, this brought up old trauma and I am really not faring too well, but I want people to know that I will be okay, I do have support, and this is not going to discourage me from further activism and further drag story time. And you're sounding very strong too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, you need to be strong. We, we are a community, the LGBTI plus community, we are a community who, who survived the AIDS crisis of the, of the 80s and late 90s. We survived the government attempts to shut us down. We won marriage equality. And many of us, unfortunately, in our community do not survive in a very literal sense. But as a, as a group, as a collective, we are stronger than we are individually. And we need to be looking after each other and checking in. And we need governance that takes human rights seriously. And the LNP does not. Regardless of your position in politics, human rights are inalienable and they are not up to political debate. Last weekend, Brisbane hosted its protest against the federal government's religious discrimination legislation. What was the mood at the rally like? Oh, it was, it was passionate. People felt that they had a voice. There was a sense of community. There was a sense of solidarity. We had people from, from all walks of life organising this 
myself and with the help of UQ Senator Drew Pablo and QUT Guild student Liam Blair, who are both allies. Uh, we, we put this on in Brisbane because Queensland is notorious for its lack of political activism, for its lack of progressive ideology. And there are so many people oppressed by this who came out to support. We almost we had almost 1,000 people, I would say it would be closer to 600 people, march from King George Square to to Queensland Parliament on, on the weekend. And we had people of faith speak. We had people of diverse sexuality and gender speak. We had people with disabilities speak. We had so many communities with us. And the reception from Brisbane who saw us march was so empowering. There was applause. There were people who joined us. And that, to me, showed that there are a lot of people in Queensland and in Brisbane who feel like their their rights, their freedoms are not being listened to and, more importantly, their voices are not being heard. What's your personal response to the religious discrimination legislation as a young, gender-diverse person? My response to this is the politicisation of human rights, which is absolutely diabolical. We can support people of faith, people of diverse gender and sexuality, people with disabilities, people needing to access sexual health and reproductive health and so on with a Human Rights Act at federal level. Now, Professor Gillian Triggs, who used to be a representative from the Australian Human Rights Commission and Amnesty International Australia, which has a a long and rich history of human rights activism and law in Australia, have both advocated for a Human Rights Act at federal level. We need to be focusing on a broad human rights federal legislation as opposed to a religious supremacy legislation which will fundamentally erode the human rights of every single Australian and people who reside in Australia. Johnny Valkyrie, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. And if that interview has caused you distress, you can contact QLife on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. From the UK, Joan Armour trading there, me, myself, are you on In Your Face on 3CR with James? Well, Joan Westenberg is a tech ecosystem leader and writer who has written a policy about trans inclusion for tech companies and joins us on the line from Sydney. Joan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Excited to be on. Thanks so much. Uh, let's start with tech ecosystems. What are they? It's a case where startups get together with tech companies and they build mini communities around the work that they do. And inside these ecosystems of you know founders and startup employees and investors, there gets to be almost a certain bubble of people who speak tech languages and write tech languages and don't think about the world outside of those tech languages. Um, but for those of us who are working inside the sphere, it can often be a case of feeling almost excluded from the companies that we're in because the vast majority of the people in the system are straight white men who are developers or who are engineers or who are investors in these companies. And so in these, these tech ecosystems, you have these, these power structures at play where there's occasionally some, I guess, exclusion for who we are when we don't fit that mould. So tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up in these environments. So I am a loud and proud trans person who is a public relations and tech tragic. So I've been I've been working in this sphere for almost 15 years now because when I first started, I was 
selling MySpace consulting to tech companies who didn't know how to use MySpace to promote their product back when I was just a teenager and I wanted to make money that didn't involve working at McDonald's. So I, I kind of fell into the space and I forced myself into the space and I never left. And then as time progressed and I came out as bisexual in my late teens and then eventually came out as a trans woman in my 20s, I just kept on taking up that space in the industry. But I'd kind of seen both sides of it. You know, I'd seen these tech ecosystems from the side of just being somebody who fit the mold. And then I saw it from the side of somebody who didn't. And I saw such a, a stretch. So tell us about the content of your trans inclusion policy. Yeah, so I was working at a tech startup called Flare not so long ago, and I was working there when I decided to transition. So I I sat down with some of the folks and I said, you know what, I am transgender and I want to come out of work and I want to transition. And they said, well, we don't know what that means, but we want to help and we want to be a part of it and we want to support you. So what would be your dream list of ways that we could do that? And I wrote down that list, and before I knew it, I was writing a transgender inclusion policy for that company. And we wrote down all the things that they could do and all the ways that they could help trans employees, and they agreed to adopt it and make it their own. And I realized that I had this document that I created collaborating with this startup, and that document could help other companies who might be in a similar situation, you know, and they might be really good people who wanted to help their trans employees but didn't know how. And so the document covers everything from a bathroom policy, you know, like supporting a trans employee in using the bathroom of their choice. It includes things like how to ensure that everyone across the company uses the right pronouns or understands the right pronouns, how to cover education. So it's kind of a starting point for, okay, you're a young tech company. You might not have a whole lot of policies in place. You want to help trans people. It's a few pages and it's growing, but it's the content you need to get started. And how responsive have tech companies generally been to the policy, which sounds so necessary and sensible? Yeah, well, look, I've actually had some really wonderful responses from it, you know, and that's been from small tech companies to growing tech firms, even some venture capital funds. You know, I've had meetings with people who have invested in startups across Australia who have asked for my help and advice to implement that policy, not only in their fund, but also in the companies that they invest in. So that kind of thing has been really powerful. I actually think that. There is a certain truth to the fact that you know, tech companies can be a little bit more progressive and liberal sometimes, and so there is a bit more open-mindedness about taking on a policy like this because they do want to be forward-thinking. Do you find so, the bigger the company, the more responsive they are? Do you find that smaller companies with less not money? Not the case at all. No? Not the case at all. The bigger companies have so much more red tape and so much more paperwork to get through. Before they even adopt a policy like this, they have to go through meeting after meeting after meeting and get sign-off after sign-off after sign-off. But the smaller companies, the ones that are high growth, they can be agile. So when they see a policy like this and when they see a chance to be supportive, they can jump right on board and just say, you know what, we're doing this. And so I'll have cases where there will be a CEO who will just say, you know what, I've decided we're going to take this policy on board. But if it was a larger tech company with you know hundreds of employees, they would need to go through a whole process before they got to that point. Your policy talks about the concept of making transition scalable. What does that mean? It means that on a one-on-one level, when you have just a single employee who wants to transition, a company can say, okay, we're going to support this individual in this context and we're going to do good by them. But that doesn't necessarily say to every other trans person working in tech, you're going to be okay. So the idea is by having a 
a template and a document that people can just follow and replicate and go by again and again. Not saying that every transition is the same because it's definitely not, but as long as people have a framework that they can go to, well, that just changes everything. You know, it's no longer just this one single person gets to transition. It's every single person gets to transition because there's a framework in place to allow it to happen. I kind of, I use the analogy of it being like you can build software or you can carry out a service just once. And if a company is going to jump online and just help each single customer that they have use one tech hack to get something done, you know, that doesn't scale. But if a company has all the processes, systems and automation and framework and structures in place to do it again and again, that's scalable. It sounds like it's been an incredibly empowering process for you putting this inclusion policy together and getting such a great response. It has been. Look, it's been about seeking my space and refusing to cede ground because, you know, when you create a document like this that sets out these are my rights in the workplace and these are the rights I expect, you're you're not just saying this is what I want, you're saying this is what I deserve and this is what I demand and this is what I will have, this is what I will take on board. So there's a lot of self-care there as well. Definitely, yeah, and and just looking at at what I need for my my mental and physical well-being and putting that down on paper. Do you find that there's been a big kind of, you know, boost to the, the frameworks that, you know, you know, like help your mental health? Like, has it been really good for your mental health putting this policy together, do you think? I think so, because you know, I think there was a, a small part of me that looked at everything I was doing to transition and thought, wow, I'm asking a lot of the people around me to support this. But once I had this policy written down, it was like, no, these are these are rights that I have. I'm allowed to, to want to do this and be supported by it. That's amazing. That's great. And it sounds like the policy is evolving too, because I guess transition is an ongoing life process as well. It is, and no document can fully reflect the trans and queer and non-binary experience. It just can't. But this document can be organic and it can grow and it can change. Now, I've told people this is an open source policy because I want people to copy it, make it their own and make versions of it that work for their company and for who they are and for what their employees need. And the idea is that it becomes a living policy. It's not this one thing that I've said, oh, hey, I'm, I'm Joan, I'm the expert on everything, so I've written the perfect policy. It's I'm Joan, I've written an open source policy that you can use as the framework to make a better policy. You've also written for a range of publications, including Crikey, Junkie and the San Francisco Chronicle. Tell us about some of the articles that you've written that spring to mind the most. So I guess I, I straddle a few different areas. You know, I write about tech a lot because that's my background and I write about comms and media and culture. I think the one article that has meant the most to me is actually a piece I wrote for the Saturday paper last year. I wrote a front page story about the push to make birth certificate changes far more accessible to people living in Victoria. And it was a really meaningful piece for me because I got to speak to some young trans and non-binary people who were really open and honest with me about the effect that some of the transphobic backlash we've seen in the media has had on their mental health. And after writing that piece, some of the the folks that I spoke to reached out to me and said they appreciated being able to speak to me about it, but also after having received the article, they could show it to their families and their families be able to understand them a little bit more as young people going through that process. So having looked back on all the writing I've done, you know, I could say, oh, I wrote all these articles about tech companies and I wrote all these articles about people raising money, or I can say, you know what, I wrote one article that somebody could show to their family to help their life just get a little bit better. And, of course, that birth certificates legislation passed in Victoria last August. How did you feel when it got up? That must have been a wonderful feeling for you. I thought to myself, you know what, Joan, it's time to get your shit together and get your paperwork in because (laughs) you really should get around to that, Um, which I eventually did do. Fantastic. So what projects have you got coming up? What are you working on at the moment? 
So I am the founder of a small creative studio called Studio Self, and through that I built a whole bunch of different products, including a self-care community called Tiny Spells, which is a witchy little self-care email and kind of forum and things like that, where people can get just a few activities they can do every single day to look after their mental and physical well-being and just take a little bit more care for who they are in the space that they're in. That's something I'm really passionate about building. I get I get so excited when I talk about it, I just get all jittery, you know. So tell us how it's witchy. It's witchy because every single part of it has a tiny little bit of influence from my interest in witchcraft. So I call it tiny spells because I believe that a spell is actually a ritual, something that you do just for yourself, just for the people around you, just to take more care. So anything can be a spell, you know. Making a cup of tea for yourself in the morning can be a spell. Turning off your phone and going for a walk at lunchtime in the fresh air can be a spell. Um, Texting a friend to tell them how much you appreciate and love them and and like having them in your life, that can be a spell. And it can all be a kind of personal magic that just helps every single person feel a little bit better. So tell us where people can go to get more information about this amazing witchy self-care stuff that you're doing and also your trans inclusion policy, which is truly trailblazing. Amazing. So, look, you can subscribe to and join Tiny Spells at tinyspells.xyz. Nice and easy to remember. And to access the open source transgender inclusion policy, you can go to transgenderinclusion.com. Fantastic, Joan Westenberg. Great work. Love your work. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Thank you for having me. Cheers. The wonderful Joan Westenberg there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. And here's Glass Knight. When I find myself in times of trouble Mother Mary comes to me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be And in
Well, if you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, I sure know where you are. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say, oh, clap your hands. We'll check out the happening vibe. They're gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to three, say, oh, flap And on the line, we have veteran LGBTIQ community activist Rodney Croom. Rodney, welcome to the program. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. Always great to talk with you, Rodney. Rodney, what do we know about the federal government's timeline for the introduction of its religious discrimination legislation? Well, last year we understood that it would be introduced uh, this month, uh, either the first or second week of sitting. But from what I understand, that time has been um, extended. And at the moment, it looks like it'll be introduced next month. That's because there were... uh, overwhelming submissions, an overwhelming number of submissions to the government during its consultation period that canned the bill, that pointed out all the deficiencies of the bill, both from the point of view of those who don't want uh, extra discrimination in the name of religion and those uh, that do. So there are criticisms from both sides and the government needs to sort of try and find some kind of path through that. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, my prediction is it'll be several more weeks before it's introduced. How is the government navigating that pathway it's hoping to find? Will we see a softening of their position, perhaps? No, I think that's unlikely. If by softening you mean they'll try and make this a more conventional anti-discrimination bill, which is what most people expected it originally to be, that is a bill preventing discrimination on the grounds of religion like other discrimination laws prevent discrimination on the grounds of race and sex and disability. I doubt that they'll veer more in that direction because it doesn't seem to be their ultimate purpose. Their purpose with this bill seems to be, as I mentioned before, allowing more discrimination in the name of religion. And uh, the, the, the more iterations there are of this bill, the more discrimination seems to be allowed. Uh, in the first iteration, for instance, that was brought forward last year, in October, I think it was, or September, there was allowance for religious organisations uh, uh, like churches and such like to discriminate uh, against other people. Uh, in the latest iteration of that bill, that provision has been extended to include all faith-linked organisations, aged care facilities, homeless shelters, welfare agencies, uh, hospitals. Uh, in the latest iteration of the bill, they will have a uh, far wider scope or they have far wider scope to discriminate. And I understand that that's still not enough for some of the uh, religious lobby groups, like the Australian Christian Lobby, that want that extended even further. And I fear that the government will head down that path because that's the direction it's headed so far. You speak with lots of MPs and political operatives. Uh, Let's continue to focus on the government for a moment. Is there much dissent in its ranks about its proposed legislation? Is anyone considering crossing the floor? There is a division within the government, yes. Moderates think that the bill goes too far in allowing discrimination, particularly discrimination by healthcare professionals. Um, I was talking before about religious organisations 
the bill also allows uh, doctors, nurses, psychologists uh, who have a religious objection to 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 not perform a particular procedure or or or, or perform or, or be engaged in a particular treatment. And uh, that's something that moderates in in the Liberal Party, as well, of course, as uh, professional bodies like the AMA are very much against. And uh, unfortunately, though, I don't see any evidence yet of any um, of those moderates crossing the floor. I think they still feel that there are internal procedures that they can use to try and resolve that issue or try and tighten up those exemptions. Unfortunately, from my point of view and the point of view of, I think, an increasing number of people who are affected by this bill, uh, it's irredeemable. It can't be repaired. Uh, there's no point trying to fix this little bit over here or this bit over there. Um, it's fundamentally flawed and it needs to be voted down. I'm surprised the gay MPs in the government's ranks are, are still optimistic uh, and have some faith. It seems a bit you know, incredible, as you say, considering the LGBTIQ community backlash against the legislation. Yes, well, you'll have to ask them why they have that faith, but they do seem to believe that it's still possible to, to, to amend the bill so it's not quite as bad. From my point of view, obviously, as a Tasmanian, I'm particularly concerned because the bill, um, the federal bill, actually directly overrides the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act, which is the strongest in the country and provides protections against... Well, it doesn't allow discrimination by religious organisations against LGBTI people, and it protects LGBTI people and others from humiliating and uh, intimidating conduct. Uh, that. That last section about humiliating and intimidating conduct, the, the federal bill actually directly overrides that. It directly overrides the State Anti-Discrimination Act, waters it down to allow humiliation in the name of religion. Why any follower of Jesus, or Muhammad for that matter, uh, or, 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 or anyone involved in an organised religion would want to humiliate another person is beyond me, but that's what the override will do. Um, and unfortunately, even some of the moderates in the Liberal Party support that. And they think that uh, state anti-discrimination legislation has gone too far in providing protections. And um, along with their free market ideas, they want to see less less uh, discrimination law and uh, less less of the positive effects, I think, of that discrimination law, which is to create a more inclusive society. Who are the MPs within the government who are really pushing this legislation? Can you name them? Well, I think people can, once they've seen what the legislation does, they can probably imagine who those MPs are. I mean, the legislation, like I said, allows greater scope for hate speech and discrimination in the name of religion. Uh, the people who that immediately and most obviously affects are LGBTIQ people. Um, but also, of course, uh, unmarried heterosexual partners, single uh, single people, particularly women, uh, women who want to access health care, particularly around reproductive health. People with disability are strongly affected by this legislation because of the of the of the stigmatising conduct they still experience as a result of uh, you know religious traditional religious beliefs that disability is somehow um, a mark of sin or a possession by the devil or whatever it might be. Indigenous people I know are concerned, uh, certainly in Tasmania, but around the country because of the way that um, sometimes uh, extreme evangelicals will uh, stigmatise traditional. Uh, indigenous culture is somehow satanic or demonic. All of these groups have something to lose. And, uh, yeah, so you only need to say, see who, who will lose from this, which are all those groups, and who will gain, which are those with extreme 
uh, fundamentalist and evangelical views. And I, I say extreme because not all fundamentalists and evangelicals want to demonize others, but those who do, who think that God tells them to, they're the ones who want this legislation. So it doesn't sound like the Prime Minister has lost any of his stomach for this legislation. What are your sources telling you about his personal kind of views at the moment about it? I think there was some hope that he may not want to go down this path anymore, given that he had to sort of rebuild trust and confidence with the Australian people after the bushfire episode. Uh, and that this legislation might look just look to most people just like another hobby horse uh, when the when the government needs to be focusing in on um, the environment and the economy. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case, no. It does seem to be that the government will be continuing with this legislation. Like I said, it'll be introduced, uh, my best guess is next month, and then probably sent off to a Senate inquiry that will take a, uh, several weeks to a couple of months after that. Another one. So... Oh, yes, yes, that seems to be on the cards. Um, it's almost like they're trying to wear us down with inquiries because that will be the third inquiry or the third round of consultation, effectively, on this bill. So uh, that will probably, given that timetable, that'll take us up to the middle of the year and then the debate will begin in Parliament in earnest. And that's when the attention will go from, uh, or it won't be just on the government, but of course it'll also be on the opposition and what they're going to do. Well, yes, and I was about to ask you about Anthony Albanese and Tanya Plebisek and the Labor Party. They've been very quiet lately about religious discrimination on the federal front. Are you still concerned about Labor's response to the legislation? Why are they telling you behind closed doors? Yes, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that Labor has been silent, uh, well, not exactly silent, but very quiet, muted and mousy in its response. It hasn't condemned the bill and uh, seems to want to sort of please everyone by by not really saying much at all, or not displease anyone. And to me, that's really disappointing, not only because this bill, as I outlined before, is a direct attack or allows direct attacks against uh, minorities that have traditionally been stigmatised by religion, it also undermines the entire framework of Australian anti-discrimination law at a federal and state level. It is the biggest windback in anti-discrimination protections in our history, in Australian history. And most of those discrimination laws are a Labor legacy. The federal or state Labor governments, most of them have been, have been passed under Labor. So here you have this set of laws which has helped create a far more um, tolerant and inclusive Australia over the last 40 years. Uh, that's dem- a demonstrable fact. Most of them are Labor legacy, and yet the current federal Labor government isn't willing to stand up for that legacy. It isn't willing to stand up and say, oh, hold on, um, these laws that we have in Australia are good and they should not be undermined. It refuses to say that, and that has been, to me, very disappointing. On a bright note, last week I was in Melbourne for a, a round table with Anthony Albanese. There were about 25 other people, all from different groups like the AMA and the Law Council and human rights bodies and disability bodies. And to his credit, he listened to the concerns that everyone had and uh, assidu- assiduously took notes, which was good. And I was pleased that the message that I gave you before about this bill being fundamentally flawed was echoed right around that table. It didn't matter where people were from, whether it's business or unions, the law or the, or the health professions, everyone was saying, this bill's terrible. It really takes us backwards. You have to oppose it. So if Anthony Albanese felt that there was any way that he was going to get support for not opposing this bill, that meeting 
sent in the message that that's not going to be the case. There is very strong opposition to this bill uh, across a range of sectors in the community. Did you have a chance to speak with him directly? Uh, what can you tell us if you did about what you said to him personally? Well, my message was about the impacts on the LGBTI community, uh, not only of the legislation itself, which are pretty, you know, those impacts are already pretty severe in terms of allowing discrimination in healthcare. I mentioned that earlier. Also, uh, undermining inclusive workplace practices because this bill allows so-called statements of belief. Um, so you can, in a, you know, in a workplace, even if you have a, a, an inclusive language policy or, or, or an inclusive culture in the workplace, you can say whatever you want <laughs> in the name of religion to demean and diminish other people. And if anyone tries to stop you, then you can take a under this legislation a, a discrimination complaint against them. So, in terms of healthcare, in terms of workplace inclusion. And certainly in terms of accessing services offered by religious organisations like hospitals or welfare agencies or aged care facilities, there's a terrible impact on LGBTI people. But above and beyond that, I said that there's just the fact that we're debating this is having a really negative impact on the mental health of LGBTIQ Australians. This, to many people, feels like payback from marriage equality. It feels like an attempt to roll back the, the modicum of equality and dignity that we worked so hard to achieve up until 2017. And, and that we know from the surveys that have been done in our community over the last um, 18 months, we know that that have, is having a, 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 a really adverse impact. The latest study I saw from Just Equal showed that 80% of LGBTIQ Australians feel as bad or worse now than they did during the postal survey. Rodney, finally, the Greens have a new leader. Do you think we'll see stronger language from them about religious discrimination now that Adam Bant is at the helm? Adam Bant does probably speak more strongly than um, Richard Di Natale, but I think, uh, in general, the Greens' policy will probably remain the same. Richard Di Natale was a, a bridge builder who liked to go out there and, uh, and uh, be the conciliator probably from his time being a doctor, a GP in, in Geelong. Uh, Adam Bant's a bit more forceful, but I think Green's policy will remain the same, and that is to oppose any attempt to water down existing discrimination protections. I'm hoping in this debate that the Greens will... I'm hoping the Greens will use this debate as a, as a kind of platform, if you like, to remind Australia uh, the, of the importance of our anti-discrimination laws, how uh, we shouldn't take them for granted, that they've helped create a better country. And if Labor's not willing to say, stand up and, and give that message, I'm hopeful at least the Greens will. Rodney Croom, thanks for your time this afternoon. Always great to chat. Thanks, James. The wonderful Rodney Croom there. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. Of course, we do have that rally in Melbourne at one o'clock this Sunday, the 9th of February. In response to the federal government's religious discrimination legislation, it kicks off at 1pm, corner of Swanston and Latrobe streets in the CBD.
mean to stay, I will. You've been loving me for years, baby. would like to thank Thornhaber Health for their financial support of this program. Thornhaber Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornhaber Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.